Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 32 through 43 leading up to the death of Christ as he is even now in this portion of Scripture of being, has been nailed to the cross. He has just indicted Jerusalem once again with judgment because of the rejection of him, and now he's being led to the cross. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. Let's stand out of reverence and respect for God and His Word. Two others who were criminals were led away to put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today... You will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that through the ministry of your word and spirit, you would strengthen us by your grace, and that we'd be reminded of that love displayed upon the cross, that you, in humble submission, are willing to be beaten and mocked and ridiculed for our salvation. For this we give you thanks, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As I mentioned, Jesus has just warned Jerusalem for about the seventh time now of their impending judgment because of their unrepentance and rejection of Him. And with that last word of judgment, Jesus is led away with two criminals to a place called the skull. It's cranion in Greek, you recognize it. It's Golgotha in Hebrew, and Calva in Latin, from which we get Calvary. And there Jesus was crucified, the most agonizing, humiliating form of execution known to man at that time. In 1842, there was a German theologian by the name of Otto Thinius who published an article saying he thinks he discovered just north of the Damascus Gate the place of the skull. There was a a cliff with two sunken holes in it that looked very much like that of a skull. And in fact, today it's called the skull. And so he proposed that this was the actual place of Golgotha, the skull, or Calvary. Now, there's nothing really to, to confirm that completely. We might not know where the place was, but we do know what happened there. All the gospel writers tell us. Luke, the doctor historian, carefully investigated and through the ministry of the Holy Spirit has given us a detailed analysis of what took place from eyewitness accounts. And so as we look again at the skull, Golgotha, Calvary, what do we see 
in this passage of Scripture. We're reminded that the scene surrounding the cross revealed the mockery of the Son of God Himself. Luke has already, up to this point, talked about the mockery of the soldiers in between his trials as they beat him and ridiculed him and mocked him. But even now at the cross, the mockery continues. It doesn't let up. In verse 35, the religious leaders mocked him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The the idea of the Christ, of the Messiah, suffering, being humiliated was unthinkable to them. So they saw this happening to Jesus and they just assumed him to be an unholy imposter. And their mockery continued. But it wasn't just the religious leaders, it was the soldiers as well who joined their voices again, even after their previous mocking. And they cried out, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. But not only the religious leaders, not only the Roman soldiers, both Jews and Gentiles alike, but now two convicted criminals. One continually railed at him, even blasphemed is the actual word. And Jesus simply took it and he turned his face. And the soldiers, there at the foot of the cross, continued to make sport of him. And they gambled for his clothing. Have you thought about that? Jesus hung on the cross without clothing. Years ago, I was 13 or 14 years old, and I had the privilege to actually hear and meet Corey Tim Boone. I was fascinated, even as a teenager, to listen to this little short woman talk about her love for Christ. Corey Tim Boone, may recognize, was the author of the book, The Hiding Place in which she told of the harrowing story of her family uh, hiding Jewish people from the Nazi Germans in their little Dutch town. Eventually, her family, her father, they were caught, they were imprisoned, they were sentenced to the Nazi death camps to humiliation and degradation by these godless soldiers. And on one occasion, as Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy were undergoing medical examinations... They were paraded without clothing, arms up before these gawking soldiers, gawking at their emaciated bodies and their swollen stomachs from malnutrition. And as she was experiencing that degradation and humiliation, Corey Tim Boom all of a sudden remembered this passage, remembered what the soldiers were doing at the foot of the cross, gambling for Jesus' clothing, and all of a sudden it came to her and she cried out, Betsy, they took his clothes too. And then she writes later, Ahead of me I heard a little gasp, Oh, Corey, I never thanked him. Phil Riken asked the question, Have you ever thanked Jesus that when he died for your sins, he died in naked shame? This was a public shaming beyond imagination. This scene is filled with a merciless mockery of sinful people and the humiliation of the innocent Son of God. But we also see in this scene at the cross, surrounding the cross reveals this twist of of divine providence. God is at work. Something's going on despite the mockery, despite the beating. Something's taking place, and God is strangely weaving His history together in what Christ is doing. And, And their zeal to discredit Jesus, the accusers, continue to use, did you notice, the very names that point to the reality of who he 
is. The religious leaders challenged his claim to be the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers hailed him king as the Jews, and the hardened criminal taunted him as the Christ. All of these names, uttered in ridicule, simply call our attention to who he really was, and they call our attention to all the scriptures that foretold of who he would be. I mean, the scene itself points to, back to the Scriptures affirming who Jesus claimed to be. As He suffered on the cross, the Jewish people could not hear in their minds but the echo of Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53. A prophecy that clearly set forth what was taking place before their very eyes. Isaiah prophesied a beating so brutal that he would be disfigured of being despised and rejected by men, of being pierced for our transgressions. He prophesied of Jesus being silent like a sheep before his shears is dumb. He prophesied as Jesus hung on the cross between two criminals that he'd be numbered with the transgressors. He even prophesied his prayer that between those transgressors, he went on to say, and he would make intercession for transgressors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But it's not just Isaiah who clearly foretold what we're seeing right here in this text. Think of the Psalms. Think of Psalm 22 in particular. We've seen it before in the past. From the very get-go, from the beginning of Psalm 22 to the end, and everywhere in between, we see what's taking place here through the prophetic voice of the Holy Spirit. Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very first verse of Psalm 22. And he ends with, It is finished, or He has done it. And everywhere in between, it reminds us. Think of just a few verses. As the Son of Man would cry out, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind, despised by the people, and all who see me mock me. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord save him. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Even Psalm 69 prophesied, They gave me for my thirst sour wine to drink. Do you see what's happening here? Despite his mockers, despite his accusers, despite those who want to silence the Son of God, even in their mockery, they're pointing us, they're pointing the people back to the Scriptures and back to the person and work of Christ. They are actually unwittingly promoting the very prophecy that supports Jesus' claims. Even the signage over His head does the same. Roman custom was they would take a sign, it was a public notice, and it would state the reason for why this person was being executed, why they were being crucified. But for Jesus, there was no reason. So Pilate, probably to get a dig at the Jews, simply said, he is the king of the Jews. John tells us that the sign was written in three languages. Now think about it, the king of the Jews, but the reality is our minds race to revelation. He's not just the king of the Jews, but king of kings and lord of lords. A, a, a declaration for the nations. And John tells us that sign, king of the Jews, was in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek for all the world to read. And so in a twist of divine providence, 
The message of Christ was being proclaimed through the lips of the very ones who wanted to suppress that truth and silence the Son of God. But finally, the scene surrounding the cross reveals the surprising, wondrous, glorious grace of God. On either side hung two thieves, two criminals who were convicted. And though one of them showed sympathy for Jesus, that is not the way the story began. Matthew tells us, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him. The robbers, plural, both of them railed at Jesus. But now only one of the criminals railed at him. The other is rebuking the railer and the mocker. What, what happened? What's taking place? What's changed? One of the criminal's hearts. I believe he was converted on the cross. He was born again by the Spirit of God. And in his dying breath, he expressed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You hear this expression of faith and this confession of faith and how it was expressed in several ways. He says, do you fear God to the mocker? This man was beginning to fear God. He was recognizing God's holy justice, His wrath, His righteousness, and His own deserved condemnation. He confessed that in His very words. We deserve this. He confessed that He was a sinner worthy to die, but He recognized something else. Jesus was innocent. Had He heard Pilate three times declare Jesus' innocence? We don't know, but we do know. As the people jeered and the religious leaders cheered and the thief railed and the Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross, he did hear these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here was a convicted criminal who recognized that he was worthy to die, and yet he recognizes the sinless Son of God pleading on his behalf, forgive them. And those words of saving grace penetrated his heart, and he began to wonder, can, can he save even me? One who's been convicted, one who is worthy to die, can he save even me? And in faith he cried out, Jesus, remember me. You know, this is the only time recorded in all of Luke's gospel that Jesus is called by his given name. Jesus. What does it mean? Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. Even the crying out of Jesus' name was a profession of faith. His very name is a profession of faith. He cried out to the Lord Jesus Christ. But perhaps the most malicious taunt finds its most gracious fulfillment. And something that's repeated three times by all three parties of the mockers. Did, did you hear the taunt, the repeated thought leveled, leveled by the religious leaders, by the soldiers, and by the thief? All three of them in derision basically said, if you are the Christ of God, if you are the chosen one, if you are the king of the Jews, then what? Save yourself. You heard that from Psalm 22. Save yourself. And three times Jesus heard that mockery. 
And yet three times, although he had the power to do so, he refused. Why? Because that was never Jesus' intent. His intent was never to save himself, but to save us. And he could only do so by remaining on that cross. By taking the ridicule and the mockery and the shaming. By enduring the wrath and displeasure and the judgment of a holy, holy God. In order to offer himself as a sacrifice for the convicted who are worthy to die. To offer himself as an atonement of of blood satisfying the righteous demands of God as a savior of sinners. And Jesus in that substitution did so that we might receive the forgiveness for which he prayed and the salvation for which he paid. And so on that basis, Jesus promises this convicted criminal something wonderful. Truly I say to you today, verse 43, you will be with me in paradise. Now, although Jesus' body remained in the tomb, his spirit immediately went to the right hand of the Father on that day, reminding us of what Paul reminds us as believers. To die is to what? To be with the Lord. And that's the promise that he makes this thief at that moment. Today you will be with me. But he used the word paradise rather than what we most commonly refer to as the Christian's destination, heaven. Why did he use the phrase paradise? The Greek word for paradise is paradesos, and it's the root word for garden. You hear what Jesus is saying here. At the beginning of redemptive history, humanity was banished from the Garden of Eden. We were shut out from the presence of the Lord, out from the Garden of Eden. But because of the work of Christ, one day that paradise lost will become paradise regained. That's the very picture John picks up in the book of Revelation of bringing this together, something wonderful and glorious. Jesus says in Revelation 2, I will grant to you to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Something so wonderful and magnificent and glorious that that new creation will be better than the first. And so Paul is able to say, Paul who entered somehow in some mystical way into the third heavens was able to say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. And that thief on the cross recognizing his own sin, recognizing his own unworthiness and his worthiness to die, also recognized the mercy of God in Christ. And he simply cried out, remember me. And that salvation can be ours as well. As we cry out to Jesus, remember me. In my guilt and in my sin, would you in mercy and grace remember me? The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there, though I as vile as he, wash all my sins away. And so there's hope for us. There's also, in the dying moment of this thief, a hope for loved ones who may for years have rejected the gospel from your lips. And so there's an encouragement to continue to pray that God would not only open our eyes, but the eyes of loved ones and 
family members and friends and neighbors and classmates who do not yet know the Savior. Continue to pray for them. Continue to plead God's mercy on their behalf that one day, by grace, they might cry out, Oh God, remember me. This thief had no time for works. He was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. Over the years, I've had the privilege to get to know Bobby Richardson, just a delightful man. We actually had him come and speak here at Clemson Prez uh, 10 or 12 years ago to a men's uh, Saturday morning breakfast. Bobby uh, played second base for the New York Yankees in 1960. He was the MVP of the World Series, and for years he held the record of the most RBIs in a series game with seven RBIs in one game. One of my favorite stories about Bobby Richardson was his love for Mickey Mantle. Their lifestyles could not have been any different. Bobby loved the Lord, Mickey loved the world, and it was very evident in their lives. But Bobby continued to pursue Mickey Mantle over the years, long after they had been teammates with the New York Yankees. He shared the gospel with him many times throughout the years. They went hunting together. They did all kinds, went to ball games together. They had a great relationship, but Mickey never responded to the gospel. Later, Mickey had developed um, liver problems. He had a liver transplant because of years of hard drinking. And then later in 1994-1995, he developed liver cancer. And he called Bobby from his hospital bed in Dallas, Texas. And Bobby shortly after visited him there in the hospital. Mantle couldn't wait to tell him the good news when Bobby walked in those doors. And he said, Bobby, I've trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And the hard running from Jesus, Mickey Mantle quoted John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Bobby had a wonderful opportunity there as Mickey lay in his hospital bed to reinforce the promises of Christ and to make sure Mickey understood what it meant to become a Christian. A few days later, Mickey Mantle passed away on August 13, 1995 at the age of 64. And during the funeral, Bobby Richardson spoke, and of course, if you know Bobby, he shared the gospel. He made a very clear presentation of Christ, and then he said this, if Mick could hold a press conference from where he is today, I know that he would introduce you to his true hero, not the man that gave him a transplant, but someone else. The one who died in his place to give him not just longer physical life, but everlasting life, his Savior, Jesus Christ. Like the thief on the cross, Mickey Mantle came to faith in Christ in the last moments on earth. The old divines used to say about the two thieves at the cross, one alone was saved upon the cross that none might despair, and only one that none might presume. You see, one was lost. So where are you this morning? Don't presume upon the grace of God. Don't presume that you have more time. Don't presume that it's something that you can put off to another day. Today is the day of salvation, Scripture says. There's another today in Scripture. Not just today, you'll be with me in paradise. But today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Philip Henry, another Puritan, said this, 
The time of God's grace to sinners does many times expire before their death. A heart can become so hardened towards the things of Christ that God removes His common grace and they shake their fist in His face until their dying breath. Do not presume. If you've trusted Christ, rejoice. Thank Him that the one who died for you died in naked shame. That He took upon Himself my guilt and your guilt and bore the penalty for that sin. Trust and rest in Him, and if you have not yet done so, cry out with a thief, Jesus, remember me. Do so today, and He will. You have His Word. Jesus, Thou art the sinner's friend. As such I look to Thee. Thou in the fullness of Thy love, O Lord, remember me. Let's pray together. Father, what a glorious wondrous reminder that even in the last breath salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone in the Christ who bore our guilt the Christ who bore our shame the Christ who endured the mockery of man and the judgment of God that we might know, O oh God, the glory of your smile and of your grace through him. Thank you that that dying thief came to know the Savior and that we, as vile as he, may know and love him as well. For this we give you thanks, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.